as you've gathered, we're continuing our series in the prophets uh, this evening. And so if you'd like to keep Habakkuk open or open it up, um, we're doing all of Habakkuk just tonight, and uh, that's three chapters. So it would be great if you had it open so you could, so you could uh, look at what we're referring to. And uh, there's an outline as well. So I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get going. Loving Father, please speak to us for our good. Please reassure us about who you are uh, as we look at the world which seems to be in such a mess. Uh, help us to trust you uh, and feed that trust tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were running the world, what sort of changes would you make? If you had control over everything, what kind of world would you run here? Most of us would probably, well, you might like make lots of different changes, but I think one big one that most of us would probably try to make is to make the world at least a little bit fairer. Um, we live in a world where a child born into poverty in the Philippines might live their whole life malnourished and uh, fighting against diseases, uh, might get very little education and so have no opportunity to improve their life and just scrape by their whole life because they don't have that start. Uh, while children in Australia, on the other hand, might take the day off school to sit in front of several computer screens, praying that they get Taylor Swift tickets and have the privilege of paying hundreds of dollars for those tickets. Um, my family sponsored... We tried to get Taylor Swift tickets, so going to Taylor Swift is not a sin, but I'm just saying there's, there's a difference, isn't there? Uh, my family sponsors a child in the Philippines through compassion, as many people do in our church, and sometimes I get photos of him standing in front of his house in the Philippines. But when I send him photos of my, family, uh, of my family, I do not send them of us standing in front of our house. And I do not, I try to give as little evidence as, of, as possible of the luxury that we live in compared to the way that he lives. Uh, because it doesn't seem fair and I don't want to rub the injustice in his face. Uh, if I were running the world, I would hope to make it a little bit fairer. Uh, and when we look at the world, it's understandable, perhaps, to have questions of God when you realise that there is so much that's not right. Uh, there, you might think of history, and there are so many injustices throughout history, so many people who got away with so much without facing justice. Think of Adolf Hitler and what he did to the Jews for a start and got away with shooting himself before he faced earthly justice. Pol Pot and what he did in Cambodia and he died an old man in his bed. Uh, Mao Zedong, what he did in China, and lived till age 82 and was still being worshipped almost as a god when he died. Joseph Stalin also got away with it. Huge injustices in the history of the world, and they can lead to questions about God. And even maybe you can think of small personal injustices, and we often feel those even more keenly than the big ones, uh, why does that awful person seem to get away with so much and be so successful, whereas that really good and wonderful person that I know seems to suffer so many hardships uh, and get nowhere in life? You know, sometimes I pray the Lord's Prayer in my prayer times, and, and it begins with this huge vision of God, you know, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes I pray that, but I'm also thinking... Lord, you told us to pray this, and I'm, and I'm trying to pray it. Um, but gee, it would be great to see some progress in these things. Um, and questions can turn to doubts and really trouble a person. 
How are we supposed to believe in God when the world is the way that it is? So much wrong that isn't being made right. These are the issues that Habakkuk raises in his prophecy. Habakkuk looked at his own people and he looked at the world and he was troubled by the wrongdoing and the injustice. We know almost nothing about Habakkuk himself, the man, but he's probably prophesying around 610 BC after the Assyrians had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel 90 or 100 years before and now the Babylonian Empire is rising to take over the world and his nation of Judah is becoming ripe for judgment. And Habakkuk is unique amongst the prophets because the prophets, you know, they stand there between God and the people and most of the prophets, uh, they turn to the people and they say, people, why aren't you doing something about God? Habakkuk's different, he doesn't do that. Habakkuk turns to God and he says, God, why don't you do something about these people? And that's what he's asking God about in this letter. How can you tolerate this? What about your justice? What about your holiness? Why don't you do something about this? Uh, now, as we'll see, um, the exile to Babylon, which was on the way, doesn't really help things. And Habakkuk ends up looking even further into the future and seeing God more clearly than he had before. So the movement in this book is from questions of God at the start through to satisfaction in God at the end. So firstly, uh, in the first uh, few verses, we have his question, his initial question, why do you tolerate the injustice of your people? And he looks at the people of Judah and he's deeply troubled at, the sta at their state and in God's inaction. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So all those words there, violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, strife, conflict, all these things that characterize the people of God. And he says, God, the bad guys are winning. These were supposed to be your people, God. How can you do nothing? God replies, Habakkuk, I'm not doing nothing. So his first answer is in, is in verses 5 to 11, and it is basically the exile. His answer is, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And God says from verse 5, Habakkuk, this is really unbelievable what I'm going to do. You're hardly going to believe this, even if somebody tells it to you. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then he goes on to describe them, as we read. They're ruthless and impetuous. They're a law unto themselves. They're violent. They're arrogant. They care about nothing but their own glory. They're unstoppable and unbeatable. They are fierce. They're fit. They're strong. They're fast. They're determined. They're ruthless. They're going to take over the world, Habakkuk. And that's my answer to your query. I said you weren't going to believe it. Uh, and of course, God's answer there raises more questions than it answers. So Habakkuk comes back to him uh, a second time uh, from verse 12. Why do you tolerate injustice and inju after injustice in the world? Because if this is your answer to raise up the Babylonians, surely that, that's even more of a problem. So there's a broader outlook in this second time around. Uh, verse 12 Habakkuk notes that God is supposed to be their rock. Uh, he will always be there as a foundation for his people and he is meant to be holy and pure. And verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? 
In other words, how can raising up the Babylonians be a solution to the problems in Judah? How can you use evil to deal with evil? Replacing one evil with a greater evil is, is not a solution, it would seem. And so he's basically asking, will this never end? If you deal with one bully by sending a bigger bully to bully the bully, then you're just going to have a world full of bullies, which of course is what we've got. That's world history, isn't it? God is supposed to be our rock. He is eternal. He is holy. But we're riding these waves through history and all we see is tyrant after tyrant and problem after problem and one problem replaces the next, injustice after injustice. How can God be satisfied with that? Well, God's answer here is to say to Habakkuk next, Habakkuk, you are not wrong about me. I am eternal and I am holy and I will have the last word. So in chapter 2, this is what he's promising. I will have the last word. And he's basically promising an ultimate end to it all here. So not just about the exile in 20 years' time after Habakkuk, uh, not just what happens within history, the ups and the downs and one thing replacing the next, this is a word that points beyond history to the end. So see there in verse 3 of chapter 2, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. So this is about the end, chapter 2. And if you just uh, look at the end of chapter 2, verse 20, you see the outcome uh, that he's envisaging. The Lord is in his holy temple... Let all the earth be silent before him. So that's what God's promising in chapter 2. That's going to be the outcome at the end. So this is the last word to end all the objections, to resolve all the questions and to finally establish God's holiness for all the earth to see. And if you look in the middle of the chapter at verse 14, there's another picture of the final outcome where it says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So this chapter is promising a, a, a perfect end for the world, a satisfying end, where there's no more wrong and no more evil and no more injustice and all the grubbiness of the present age will be washed away and just the glory of God perfectly displayed in all the earth like the waters covering the sea. That's what the world will be like after God delivers on this promise. So that's what's being promised. But for the time being, of course which we're living in now, everything is all mixed up. Righteousness and wrongdoing, justice and injustice, bullies and victims. It's hard to see who's who and what's what. I mean, are you a bully or are you a victim? Well, sometimes you're a bully and sometimes you're a victim. Of course, in this day and age, everyone wants to be a victim and in claiming to be a victim, often they turn themselves into a bully. But that's another story. I won't get started too much on all of that. But it's sort of both sides in all of us, you know, all of this injustice and we're all caught up in it. And the question might be, well, who are the people of God in all of this? Who is going to be okay in the end when the glory of God covers the whole earth as the waters cover the sea? Well, I want to highlight a, a, a crucial distinction that uh, Habakkuk hints at in chapter 2, verse 4. And this is a really key verse in, in, uh, in Habakkuk because the New Testament picks it up at a few very significant points. And this is the crucial distinction between those who are on God's side and those who are the enemies of God. It says, see, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness or faith. You may have heard it said that in the Old Covenant, people were saved by their works, but in the New Covenant, people are saved by God's grace and their faith. 
That's not right, because here in the Old Covenant, in Habakkuk, just like in the New, the righteous will live by faith. That is, we don't earn life by our works, making us righteous. Rather, we are given life by our faith being made righteous before God as a gift. Um, So, in, in view of the end, when the whole earth is silent before God, the crucial distinction on that day won't be between good people and bad people, because we're all bad people, we're all sinners, so there's no point claiming that I'm one of the good guys. The distinction then, when all the world is silent before God, will be between those who trust in God's Word, who are righteous by faith, and those who remain enemies of God. And most of chapter 2 describes how God will bring justice to His enemies in the end, and there are five woes of justice in this chapter. There's you know, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. Uh, And I'm not going to go through all of them, but basically he's saying all the ruthless rulers who swallow up nations and enrich themselves at the expense of others, you know, as God uses bullies to punish other bullies and all of this cycle happens, in the end they'll all be brought to justice and woe to all of those uh, rulers. Uh, Basically, as a summary, the plunderers will be plundered, the ruiners will be ruined, the swallowers will be swallowed, the shamers will be shamed, the deceivers will be deceived. That's what uh, Habakkuk promises in chapter 2. And at the end, the Lord is in His holy temple, let all the earth be silent before Him. So, it's a wonderful picture, actually, in the end, God's going to arrive and this is going to be the outcome. When I was in high school, I had a teacher called Miss Anderson, who was a formidable teacher, one of those kind of ones that you really take notice of. She was basically a little old lady, and she was built like a sparrow, tiny little thing. But she had these beady eyes, and she, her mouth was sort of drawn tight in a, in a really sort of thin line. And she'd just kind of eyeball you and look right into your soul, you know, one of those people. Intensely focused person. And so English would come around, we'd all pile into the classroom, we'd be mucking around and doing whatever. Uh, and she would enter and she would march across the front of the room with her sort of leather briefcase and sort of with great purpose. And she'd unpack her briefcase and then she would turn and fix her eyes on the class and the whole class was silent before her. She had this power. And her message was very clear, I will teach you the work of Coleridge and Shakespeare and you will comply. And we did, we all complied, and she taught us. Interestingly, out of 13 years of school, I think she was probably my favourite teacher, because she's just so intensely passionate about her topic. Um, Anyway, she had this power over the class, and, and everybody fell silent before her. When the time comes and the Lord enters to judge, the earth will fall silent and will comply. And if justice looks messy to you now, it will not look messy then, it'll be perfect. If things seem unfair now, they will not be unfair then. What is unclear now will be clear then. If things seem very unresolved now, they'll be resolved then. And no one's going to say, but that's unfair. Or no one's going to say, but what about that? Finally, all the earth will be silent before him when he achieves this justice will be satisfied. So, that's the promise of chapter 2 and for Christians, we can be even more sure that God's going to deliver on this promise because we've seen Jesus and the cross of Jesus shows us how serious God is about justice 
If he wasn't serious about justice, why would he send his son as a sacrifice to satisfy the justice of his people's sins in advance of the final judgment? The cross shows us that he's interested in justice and the resurrection of Jesus shows us the final judgment will definitely happen because he's raised the judge from the dead and if the resurrection has begun, then everybody is going to be brought back for judgment one day, as the New Testament promises. So justice is coming. Jesus shows us that that is even more sure than Habakkuk knew. The question is, though, we are still living in history and we are still living with all this injustice and unfairness all around us and the world doesn't seem to work as it should. Can we be satisfied with this promise? You know, can, do we have enough to go on to believe that God is going to do this? That there is a God and he is like this and we can trust him to pull this off? Well, Habakkuk's response in chapter 3 shows that, yes, we do have enough to go on to keep believing and holding on to God, even if what we see going on around us does not satisfy us. Uh, So basically, chapter 3, God is enough, is Habakkuk's response. God, as he has revealed himself now, is enough. And uh, as you'll see, if you look at the chapter, it's it's actually like like a psalm, it's a song uh, about how a believer can keep trusting in God, even in circumstances that might make us question or doubt God, we can keep trusting. We might look around and we might think, well, if God's there, what is he doing? But the secret is, as Habakkuk says here, to look to what we have heard. What have we heard of God? And that can satisfy us. Notice in verse 2, Habakkuk says, I have heard. And then in verse 16, he says, I heard. And in between those two verses, all the things he's heard about God uh, so far. Verses 3 to 7, God coming to his people. There's glory, there's light, there's fire, there's smoke, there are plagues, there are earthquakes, there's distress and anguish. God is a mighty God. Verses 8 to 15, there's God fighting for his people. There's the creator entering his creation and turning, turning everything upside down on behalf of his people. Uh, um, there's the waters, there's the earth, there's the sun and the moon in the heavens. There's the, so this is the creator God intervening on behalf of his people. So there's all these pictures that Habakkuk is throwing together from the Old Testament of God acting. Uh, this is what Habakkuk had heard of God and it was enough for him to go on. We have also even more in our day and age to go on than Habakkuk had because we've got all these these Old Testament images, God at work in the world on behalf of his people and now we've got Jesus as well. Uh, He's entered the world full of grace and truth, we have the witness of the New Testament, we we see the glory of the one and only Son uh, testified to here and the signs and the wonders and the death and the resurrection and the launch of the gospel in the power of the Spirit in the book of Acts. We've got all this evidence of what God has done, this is what we have heard of God. And the question is, do we have enough here in the record that we have heard of to keep trusting that God will deliver on this big promise that he's making in Habakkuk? Um, And the answer is yes, we do. Some people might say, well, you know, I don't see God doing much today. I don't see much evidence of God acting. So why should I believe in him? If I saw him actually do something, then I would believe. But notice that Habakkuk wasn't seeing God do anything either. Habakkuk only had what he had heard of God. Um, And he's praying there in verse 2, God, please do more of it today. I'd love to see you acting. I'd love to see you do amazing things. But nevertheless, what he had heard 
was enough on its own. And even if he didn't see God acting yet, it still had a profound effect on him what he had heard of God. You can have a very deep relationship with God based on what you hear of him. Uh, so he wasn't seeing God acting, but he had a fearful expectation of God. He was still in awe of God. See verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Can you have that kind of response to God just from what you hear, just from reading the Bible? And when you read the Bible, can, can it make your legs tremble and your lips quiver and your bones decay? Yes, it can, and we should be praying for that. Uh, this was the effect on Habakkuk, just what he heard. Um, he had a fearful expectation of meeting God face to face on the final day. Of course, a Christian on the final day, we might fear God as well, and we should fear God, but we, we're not fearing for our salvation. We know that Jesus has died for us. But nevertheless, the fear of God, the quaking knees, is a good sign in a Christian. But mixed with that awe and fear is also a patient exaltation that is a deep trust and a joy in God, even as Habakkuk waited. And so we have uh, one of the great statements of faith in the whole Bible at the end of Habakkuk. Um, I don't know if these words will be uh, familiar to you, but from verse 17, he says, this is his conclusion, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. We, might, we may not see God acting in our time and we may be desperate for him to act and we might be praying like Habakkuk, uh, God, please act. Let me see you do something because we might feel very deeply that things are not right, but we can still have a vision of God based on what we have heard of Him in the Bible, even if we don't see Him act in our time in obvious ways. And what we have is enough to give us joy and strength as we wait. That is, we can be satisfied in God even now. In the New Testament, that's called living by faith, not by sight. So sometimes I might pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and I might think, come on God, why aren't you doing it? But do I have enough to keep trusting God in what I've been told of Him? Yes, I do. And I need to look more closely at what I've been told about Him and be satisfied. Sometimes a person might have big doubts about God when they look at the world or even based on their own experiences and they think, that's not right, and they think, I, I don't know if He's there. But do they have enough to trust based on what we have been told, what we have heard of God? Yes, they do. They need to look at what we can know about God in the Bible and especially in Jesus and they can be satisfied. They can know that he is there. There are times that feel like there's not much blessing coming from God, you know, no figs on the tree, no grapes on the vine, no, the crops are failing, the stalls are empty. You know, sometimes our lean times, maybe spiritually lean times, we might feel dry and not much blessing coming from God. But the promise here is that God will have the last word and he will be faithful to his people and the whole earth will be silent before him one day and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. 
we can be sure of that. And in the meantime, the righteous will live by faith. And so we have to keep trusting the God of whom we have heard, the God who's revealed to us in the Bible. So um, as I've done the previous several weeks, I've put a prayer down the bottom of the outline, uh, which is a sort of a personal prayer, a response to God. And you may like to pray that as I read that prayer just in your head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have promised to have the last word on injustice and wrongdoing and you have revealed enough of yourself for us to trust you. I believe, but help my unbelief. When I have doubts, help me to look to your word and be satisfied with what I hear of you. Put me on your side as one who is righteous by faith in Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.